0: Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to the Weekend Wrestle Podcast, episode 188 of the Weekend Wrestle Podcast. I am Nate and your host. Thank you for joining me this week and every week, of course, we, just, we appreciate your support. This week on the show, I have a very, very special guest, a special interview that I recently did with Brian R. Solomon, the author of Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original Sheik, one of my favorite wrestling books of all time. If you have not read it, you definitely should. And Brian and I sat down for a little under an hour and talked wrestling, talked his career in journalism. uh, He he worked for the WWE. He worked currently for Pro Wrestling Illustrated. And of course, like I said, a great author. So please stay tuned for my interview with Brian here momentarily. Uh, Before we get to that, I do want to remind you, the WrestleNet Radio Podcast Network is now on YouTube. It is WrestleNet, one word radio. Please search us out on YouTube as we will be now providing video content along with the audio content that we have here on the WrestleNet Radio Podcast Network. Some original shows that are going to be on YouTube. um, One coming up that I'm going to start recording probably this week is actually we're going to just get out a wrestling magazine. I have hundreds of wrestling magazines here. We're going to get out a wrestling magazine and just sit down and go through cover to cover through that magazine, talk about our memories of the stars and the the angles that are discussed in the magazine. I'm very, very excited to do that show. That will be coming exclusively to the WrestleNet Radio YouTube page. So I'm very excited about that and uh, all the video content that we are going to be providing. So now that I'm done with that plug, let's get to it. Let's get to my interview with Brian R. Sullivan. It was great to have him on the show again. And we do mention during the interview, we do a good discussion of the book. But again, the book that he just recently released, Blood and Fire, The Unbelievable Real-Life Story of Wrestling's Original Sheik, is available Pretty much anywhere but right now let's go to my interview with brian r solomon all right everyone and i want to welcome my guest this week on the we can't wrestle podcast the one and only the man who literally wrote the book on the chic mr
1: brian solomon welcome to the show oh well thanks for having me it's great to be here thanks so much oh yeah
0: absolutely and um for those of you that don't know uh, Brian is also the host of Shut Up and Wrestle, a great podcast on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, which I listen to religiously every single week. You do a great job with that, Brian. Um, chronicling, thing, but I, what I love, and, and this is about you, not about me, but I always, you know, you always center back to what <laughs> um, What I love about your show is the the variety of guests and guests that people that you wouldn't normally get to hear from, like you have had people on that worked on the inside in the office and the WWE. And it's just so interesting to listen to those stories as opposed to, and nothing against the wrestlers, but you know, normally we just hear the wrestlers side of the story.
1: Right. That's one of my favorite things to do is, is bring the office people in the company people in. Cause that's actually one of the things that inspired me to do the show. Not that it was just going to be that, but look, I mean, there's a million wrestling podcasts in existence. Yes. And it took me years before I just got up the nerve to do my own and figured out what I wanted it to be. And But that was one of the reasons why. I was like, you know what? Here's something nobody's doing. And I'm not going to make it be just that, but I'm going to, like, sprinkle them here and there. And every time I do it, you know, it's because I work there, obviously, so I know all these people personally. But every time I do it, people always go, you know, I didn't want to listen to that one because I thought it would be boring. I never heard of that guy before or whatever. And then I listened to it and it was like the most fascinating thing I ever heard. And I'm like, yeah, there's hundreds of people like that. that exactly. no Fans have no idea who they are and they have the greatest stories that you will ever hear. So, yeah, that's a big part of the show. Um and that's the other thing, too, is I think it's, it's a matter of and
0: I, I, I don't I don't I think just knowing you on social media that you are much like me. Also, the things that you are a geek about, you are a geek about and I am the same way. You know, that's that's what being a geek is about is being when you're a fan of something and it is very intense um, comic books. Uh, just like I told my wife yesterday, seeing that that uh, preview for the new Flash movie, seeing Michael Keaton as Batman hit me right in the childhood. You know, <laughs> yes.
1: yes, but I was more interested in that and the and the Indiana Jones trailer than the game. Exactly. Sunday. Yeah. So <laughs> just but me, though.
0: I think that's a that's another reason that I love those those behind the scenes people interviews is it's it's since I love wrestling so much because I mean, as I've gotten older and I'm sure you're the same way I don't consume the newer product as much as I did the older product but it's just fascinating and you just want to eat up as much as you can and, and and absorb as much information about the business as you can and I really really do honest to God appreciate the fact that you do those interviews.
1: Thank you. Yeah, just trying to add something new some another layer to the story and 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 record, you know, people's memories and perspectives that otherwise nobody I think would even think to to do. Mm-hmm. um so getting into before we get into your career as far as your
0: fandom goes um when did that start you know I always like to ask people what what you know what was that first memory you have of wrestling and when did your fandom start and what was it you know what 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 are your what was your favorite stuff
1: well there's a difference it's almost like a three-part question because people ask me that sometimes it's like and, and maybe it's this way for a lot of fans like you can t- I can talk about when I first became aware of wrestling, you know, as a thing, I can talk about my earliest memory of watching it. And then I could talk about becoming a fan. Those are actually like three different things for me. Like my earliest memory of knowing what wrestling was or being aware it existed was actually when I was in kindergarten. It's a crazy story. And I didn't even put it together till years later had no idea what it was, but I started kindergarten in 1979 and they gave us a tour of the school facilities. And back then the WWF, cause I'm in New York City, mm-hmm. I was, WWF would run high school gyms and elementary school gyms, really small shows. People don't realize they used to do that. And they were bringing one there. It was like the fall of 79 and there was a giant poster and it had Greg the Hammer Valentine and Chief J Strongbow. Strongbow had, uh, Valentine had broken Strongbow's leg with the figure four and they had this whole grudge match and it was coming to the Regina Popes Youth Center in Brooklyn, New York. I had no I could barely read, you know, <laughs> but I remember seeing the letters WWF Valentine Strongbow like I could read that much. I had no idea what it even was until years later. Now, I didn't get into wrestling like a lot of guys my age, they started watching it right at the beginning of Hulkamania, WrestleMania, you know, around that 85 era. And I remember all the kids in school talking about it. Like, I, you know, I, I really wasn't a fan yet, but I remember that it was going on. I flipped it on. I remember I was flipping through the channels. The first wrestling I ever remember watching, it was the Manager of the Year 1985, Manager of the Year Awards. And um, how did it go? Bobby Heenan was going to win, right? But then Hillbilly Jim gave all of his votes to Captain Lou Albano. I don't even know how they'd allow that. And then Captain Lou won. Of course, Bobby Heenan broke the trophy. And I was like, what is this? But I, it was you know, my first memory of watching it, but I didn't really become a fan. What got me hooked permanently as a fan is Andre the Giant turning on Hulk Hogan on Piper's Pit, which was another case of I'm flipping through the channels on a Saturday morning. It just happened to be on. It was right there on the Piper's Pit segment and that actually got me. I was 12 years old. I was in the seventh grade and it was off to the races from there. That's really where in the lead up to WrestleMania three is where I became a, a fan, a true fan.
0: And then of course we, we always go back, you know, cause I mean, I, th- that's one of the things I love about the internet now is that I can watch stuff be- from before I was even born. And, and I know you're kind of like me kind of, a I don't know if I'd use the word Renaissance man, but you know, I'm, I'm 44 years old and, Most times I would rather watch Blazing Saddles or a Marx Brothers movie than something that's that's current that was made yesterday. Um, And that's how it is with wrestling. You know, I'd rather watch the old stuff. I don't know. I just and I don't I don't I'm not one of those guys that shits on the new stuff. It is what it is. It's like that that age old expression. They don't make new music for old people you know, and, and, and a lot of times that's, that's how I feel. I feel like, okay, maybe it's passed me by a little bit. I still watch it casually. You know, I mean, my first memory of, of wrestling is um, actually I, it was like, it was like, it was 83. I was like five years old. And in Ohio here in Ohio, all we got for wrestling on TV I can't even remember if, I wouldn't even know if back then we had TBS. I don't know. I was five. Um, But what I remember seeing was the WWF show. It might have been All-Star Wrestling. I'm not sure. Um, And Hulk Hogan hadn't even won the title yet. Hulk Hogan and Bob Backlund were in a tag team against, I think, I might have been the Samoans. I don't even know. I don't even remember. I mean, but I, I remember that's the first time I saw it. And other than WWF, we got the dying days of 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 the Sheik's territory here because it, I, right, grew up in to, course, I grew up yeah. in Toledo. I mean, most of the wrestling shows I went to see as a kid were at the Toledo Sports Arena. And, uh, you know, it's it, so I saw the great Wojo, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. the very young Scott Steiner um, on uh, what was his promotion, WWA.
1: Yeah, the WWA, that was Dick the Bruiser's promotion. Dick the Bruiser, yeah. the Sheiks
0: was uh oh, I forget what they the called Sheik it. Sheik
1: was big big time wrestling. Big
0: time. That's right. Yeah, yeah I got him confused. Um, because when I would come down, when I would get closer to Indiana to go see my grandma, Dick the Bruiser's TV was still on yep. in its dying days when I was a kid. But I mean I remember watching those and watching old Dick the Bruiser on man, this guy's old. And then my grandpa saying, Oh, I met Dick the Bruiser at a truck stop and blah blah blah, because everybody <laughs> around here knows dick the bruiser or a dick the bruiser story or it's like seven it's like seven uh seven degrees of dick the bruiser around here
1: (laughs) that's great you know and so i'm thinking now you're talking early 80s it was was
0: right it was right before it was right before hogan won the title i remember i remember the victory magazine banner Hanging up on the, this is like, you know, it's like that little, that kid memory that, you know, it's, 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 is it real or is it Memorex? But I just, I remember it was Hogan and Backland against, God, it might have been the Samoans or maybe uh, Tiger Chung Lee or something. It was some kind of heel like
1: that. Well, the funny thing about the Sheik's promotion is like, you know, by that point, you're talking 84. I mean, he was really done pretty much, like the TV product was dead. They were oh, off yeah. TV and you know, they'd stopped running Kobo Arena in Detroit. Toledo Sports Arena, like you mentioned, that was run back in the day by a guy, a pro- promoter named uh, Martino Angelo, who worked for um, the Sheik's family. And he, I'm trying to think now, They Toledo Sports Arena was probably number three or four on the Sheik's circuit back in the day. It was Kobo Arena in Detroit. Cincinnati Gardens was definitely number 2. Then you had probably number 3 would be the Harris the Harris Arena, Harrah Arena in Dayton and then I think Toledo Sports Arena. But Toledo, you know, this would be a little before you were watching. It was one of those things where those territories sometimes even the WWF was like this. Sometimes certain cities or buildings would have their own angles their own feuds that would be going on even madison square garden was like that where they were booking the talent from the central office right but it wasn't always totally in line with with what was going on on tv like i know in toledo that was a great example of that they had their own angles and stories that would go on and i think it even continued even after the sheik's territory was done at least for a little while until then of course vince comes in and just mm-hmm. wipes everything out right around yeah, well, the time yeah, you're talking that, about that's
0: what i was gonna say i mean all, all, literally all of the wrestling i ever went to see at the toledo sports arena by the time i was old enough for to be able to go watch wrestling and everything literally everything i ever saw at the toledo sports arena was wwf right you know it was it was um but i'm know, I wondering
1: saw- if they were still using maybe some of those guys like on the undercard or maybe like to job out to the WWF talent. Cause they were known to do that. You know, they, mm-hmm. they might've still been using some of those Toledo, you know, stalwarts. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, definitely. By
0: the time, by the time I would have seen it, it, like as it aired, there was something that was still using the, there was some remnant of the Sheik's territory, you know, right. some it was. the great Wojo. Um, I just remember he was actually a, uh, uh, I think a football coach in Toledo also, um, at one of the high schools, but you know, they would have their show on TV and it would air and I, I, where it aired was in Detroit. It aired on Fox 55 from Detroit. And we got that on cable. Um, But you know they'd be at the Lucas County Fairgrounds or something, and you know there's yeah fifty people there or whatever. But they were still trying to use the the influence of you know this this is the descendant of the Sheik's territory. That's
1: definitely what they were going for. I think George Cannon was doing was promoting in that area for a little bit, and he was actually this goes to show you like how the Sheik had been so marginalized by the time of eighty four like that when Vince started coming into the area. He didn't even bother dealing with the Sheik because sometimes he would deal with whoever was the local territorial Mm -hmm. guy, try to make a deal, try to work with them like he did with Jack Tunney and Paul Bosch and the Hearts and all that. And when he came to the Ohio, like Michigan area, the Sheik was nowhere. The guy that the point person that Vince worked with was George Cannon. He was the guy that was really the closest thing to running that territory when Vince came in. Okay. Yeah. Um, so as since we're talking about him now, we'll just, I'll just,
0: I'll just dig into this before we go back to the magazine and stuff like that. Sure. The process I, I love, I love blood and fire. It is, Thank you. it is, it's it actually my, my two favorite wrestling books. The, my two favorites are autobiographies. They are Um. Uh, Fred Blassie's autobiography is amazing.
1: I think that's the best biography that WWE ever put out from their own. Yeah publishing.
0: Yeah, it it's 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 a fantastic book and I love Mick Foley's first book. Yes.
1: Um of course. That's the one that started it all. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but started as far as everything. as far as as just someone doing a biography, I have to say I yours is my that one's my favorite and it's just because I can tell the 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 TLC, the love and care that was taken into writing the book and you can just as you read it you can tell that you you did the work, you know, and and it really shows. Um, so my 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 first question about that is just the process of writing. I, I had on one of my other shows, I had Ian Totten, who's a, a a fiction writer, on, and and talking to him about the process of writing fiction. But for the process of writing an autobi or a, sorry a biography on someone. W- how do you even get started? And how does that, how does that blossom? Like when you were writing the book, who, who did you have to talk to first and, 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 you know what I mean? Like, just how does that process roll and and get moving?
1: Well, it all all depends on the person you're writing about. I mean, I can speak for my own experience. I knew it was going to be an uphill battle because it's somebody who died in 2003. He was notoriously secretive. Even before that, most of the most important people to the story are gone. And in fact, some even died during the process of writing it. I mean, one of the one of the key Detroit wrestling historians that I was in touch with from the beginning, Mark Bujan, rest in peace, he didn't even survive the process of writing the book, which is a horrible mm-hmm. thought. I, you know, I I know how badly he wanted to see the finished copy. So, I mean, like, when you're writing somebody that, about somebody that's that far in the past, you really need to have a strategy, you know? And so I knew I was going to have to do a lot of deep, research I couldn't strictly rely on interviews but interviews interviews were still kind of the first big step that I took Mm -hmm. to get a general picture talk to people who would know and get their ideas even if you don't use everything and even if they're not you know they're people who were like rookies when the sheik was an old man you know what I mean It's, it's still the best you can do and you gather that and then I started really doing the deep dives like I mean Ancestry.com, the the United States, like government records, military records, death uh, certificate, that kind of stuff. Like trying to really dig deep. Newspapers.com is priceless. It's like I don't know. This is the kind of thing where if it was before the age of the Internet. I'd be traveling all over the country. I'd be like going back and forth. I'd be going seriously like to Washington, D.C., to Detroit, to Lansing, and, you know, it would take forever. And thankfully, a lot of that you don't have to do anymore. I mean, it's it's really astonishing. Of course, you know, what you can get from home, especially if you have the time to devote to it. And I, thanks to the pandemic, had a lot of time on my hands at that time. This was right. three years ago. And so, you know, it was that. And then, obviously, I know I'm rambling a little, but the key is, you have to have a story arc. Like if you read the book and if you like the book and I'm glad and I thank you, but I had in mind, what's the story I'm telling. I'm not just putting facts together. Somebody was born, they lived, they did a bunch of stuff and then they died. Like, what's the story? This is an immigrant story. This is like a story about the the weirdest manifestation of the American dream that you could ever possibly think of. (laughs) This is a story about wrestling's greatest heel, the most secretive person who caused his own, you know, destruction. You have to like have these things in mind, like where is it actually going and not just, you know, I'm just going to list facts because that's, you know, boring.
0: And and that's like exactly like I was saying, like a lot of times you you read a biography about someone and that's what it is. It's just, it's very, I don't know. That's what I said. I I could just tell that you took the time and did the work. do it because there's so much detail in there and and so many so many things i didn't know you know and, and even 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 growing up around here stuff that i didn't know about that you know about this area the history of wrestling in this area and just i mean it just fantastic it was a fantastic book um did who who was who was your greatest resource as far as, as far as, uh, you know, other than, other than the internet, <laughs> but as, right. as far as a person goes, who would you say was your greatest resource when you were doing
1: Absolutely, that? it was Dave Brzezinski, Supermouth okay. Dave Drayson. He was the guy. And, you know, for a while there, it was him and Mark. Um, but Dave and Mark was great. The difference with Dave, too, is that Dave was in the business a little to a further degree. Like Mark was a promoter. I know he did some promoting. But Dave was the Sheik's manager. Dave worked in the front office of big-time wrestling. Mm -hmm. Dave was a photographer at ringside at Cobo Arena. And, you know, Dave has unique insights. He would tell me crazy stories like hanging out with the Sheik at the – they had the bridal shower for Sheik's future daughter-in-law. And Sheik and Dave were the only men there. And they were just, like, hanging out – in the other room, just waiting for it to end or whatever. And, you know, getting these pearls of wisdom and stuff. So I told this, I tell this to Dave all the time. And he's always like half kidding with me about getting like a cut of the profits, quote unquote, profits of the book. But this book wouldn't have been as good as it is or what it is without Dave. Like I told him, I would have still wrote the book, but it just probably would have not been, as probably wouldn't have been good period i mean Mm -hmm. without the kind of insights and not just insights but not just his own insights but the connections that he made excuse me that he made for me and the paths that he would lead me down like look into this or ask about this you know talk to this person it was all that that's what made it made the book what it is great um for
0: the listeners that are uh, listening here, that maybe don't listen to your show or don't know, you also worked for the WWE, uh, WWE magazine, correct? Yep, two thousand to two thousand seven. I was there. Um, what What did you do before? Where, where Where did you write before that?
1: Well, my my only full time job before that was my job right out of college. So. Um, in the late 90s, I worked for a reference book publisher called H.W. Wilson, which used to be a very big deal pre-internet because what they did was they created what was called the Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature. That was their big claim to fame where every student, every researcher at a higher a higher level was using their they're this guy to find magazine articles, to find journal articles. They were indexed and they put out all these other reference books like biographical dictionaries and stuff. And I came to work there right out of college when I was going for my master's degree. And, you know, it was decent money. It was like a first job out of, out of college for, for me. And I was getting married and was looking for something a little more, lucrative with a little more of a future to it. And, and uh, that eventually led me to WWE, which I, which I started probably nine months after I got married, something like that. Okay. Got married the first time anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And lo and behold, I I assume that's
0: how you wound wound up, why you wound up in Connecticut.
1: (laughs) Yes, it is. It is. And and, and I just, last July was my 20th anniversary in Connecticut, which for somebody that grew up in Brooklyn is just a weird feeling now. I've been here this long now. It started because of work, like you said, but then, you know, things happen. My kids are in the school system here. Mm -hmm. I have other opportunities here. Not to mention, I mean, look, it was always my goal to leave the city, especially for having kids. Like, I didn't want to just stay there. And I'm reminded of why every time I go back. (laughs) Oh, this is why. This is why I left Brooklyn. But uh, I didn't want to. You know, I wanted to go somewhere, I just didn't really know where, and the job is what made up my mind for me. So, thank you, WWE. I probably would have wound up in Staten Island if it wasn't for this job. So,
0: that's it, if it, and I, I feel the same as you, kind of, because I, um, and it, obviously it's not New York City, but I grew up in Toledo and now we, we live in we live in a more rural area and that's kind of my same thing too when my kids and my daughter was born I just didn't want to raise her I didn't when I, where I went to school we went through metal detectors and there were bars on the windows and same thing. I didn't want my kids to go to schools like that you know and, and things so that's what we did too and now it's funny because I I love to visit the city but I would never want to live in the city again
1: <laughs> I went to I went to private schools growing up in the city. And it was for that reason alone, my friends that were in public school, it was getting to be a war zone. Unfortunately, not only that, but as a result of that, the curriculum was falling behind. Mm -hmm. Like I remember my own experience. I was always at least a full grades worth of work ahead of kids, my age that were in public school. I mean, just urban decay in general, the neighborhoods not really being what they used to be. And it's only gotten worse since I've left just very being very depressed and stuff. And, and, um, you know, I, I got to the point where, with Mike, when I went to college, my parents didn't even have any money left because they spent so much on grades K through 12. And I said, you know, it really shouldn't be that way. That's kind of ass backwards. My, my high school cost more than my college. So I didn't, I, I went to city university, which was very affordable. I went to Brooklyn college, so I didn't want that for my own kids. I wanted to go somewhere where you didn't have to pay through the nose in like first grade, you know, where, mm-hmm. where, where public school was actually a viable option. And, and that's where we are.
0: Yep. Same here at that same experience. Uh, like I said, different, different just because I know it's probably the New York thing's probably Toledo times 12, but <laughs> it's still, it's, it's still kind of a similar, a similar situation. Um, so when you started working for the WWE, um, could you lead us through your career there? What positions you held at the magazine and, um, and et cetera, et cetera.
1: Sure. I started on Valentine's day 2000, which actually, now that I think about it, I just passed an anniversary. I didn't even realize that, (laughs) but, um, yeah, so I started Valentine's day of 2000 as a, copy editor, which basically was just a fancy way of calling me of being a proofreader, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was working for two departments. I was working for publications and I was also working for creative services. And they do like all the merchant that, like they design stuff. They designed posters, t-shirts, ring aprons, like just anything that that they needed, like graphic design for outside of the publications, they would do
0: at that time, at that time, what a cool department that would have been to be a part of just because yeah. you, you have, and I didn't, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, but it just, no, no, no. I, it's I'm sure that they were the people that were responsible for Cause now you don't have the, it's, it's so many years later. And I feel, I feel like I'm the old man yelling at the cloud when I say stuff like this, but back then all those pay-per-views had those different sets and, you know, and everything now, everything looks the same every, every week, every day and there just, was
1: much I, more for them to do back then and and right uh, yeah 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 certainly they were much more involved in the process like i know some people hated this whole era but they were heavily involved in the design even of how the wrestlers would look and that that kind of got moved away from during the attitude era you know where it mm-hmm. wasn't so much like we're designing you know costumes and things as much but they still have a lot to do but i i worked for them until probably late 2000. And then I really became fully on board with publications because they made me a staff writer on the magazine because I had been copy editing and proofreading the magazine. And then they started to realize like, this guy knows more about this product than like almost anyone in the department. (laughs) And he's, and he just got, you know, he's, he's got a degree in literature and he's a writer. Like, what are we doing? Now, little did they know that like the proofreading job was just my way to get my foot in the door. Like right. I had never worked as a proofreader in my life. Like I had to learn about how to do it when I got hired. I bluffed my way into it. And so writing was really what I was trying to get to do. And so by, by the end of 2000, I started writing on the magazine staff. By about three years later, the managing editor of, of Raw and WWE magazine, Mike Fazioli, he left to go, uh, he was moving his family out, uh, out of state and uh, getting, I think he went to work for Men's Health and like the Rodale magazines. I mean, it was a great gig. And so then uh, what they did is they split it up. They gave Raw magazine to one of the writers who was Aaron Feigenbaum, Aaron Williams. And they gave WWE magazine to me. And right at, after that, it turned into SmackDown Magazine like mm-hmm. a few months later. So I basically shepherded SmackDown Magazine all the way through as the managing editor, which for publications purposes, managing editor, even though for a lot of magazines, that really just means you control the workflow, like the traffic. You, you make sure everybody's getting to see everything. For me, and in our experience, I was running that magazine. I was essentially the editor-in-chief of of WWF slash SmackDown magazine without having the title or the salary that would usually go with that. But I mean, I was like assigning stories. I was approving layouts. I was like organizing photo shoots, the whole thing. Like it was my magazine. And then by about 2006 for a lot of fans and readers of the magazine, they revamped the whole thing. They brought in a whole new crew of like New York men's magazine people like Maxim type guys. Mm-hmm everything changed. They got rid of almost everybody. Um, uh, they kept me around for about a year and then they eventually got rid of me too, but I was sort of demoted in a way. It w- you know, it wasn't really my, my show to run anymore. I was, mm-hmm. I was sort of back to being a writer and maybe like a contributing editor, but I, I, I de- it definitely wasn't as much fun. And so, but by 2007, um, uh, we, we parted ways, not maybe in the most amicable of ways, but, 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 uh, yeah, they let me go.
0: <laughs> as as far as the magazine goes, um, or went, I don't even know if WWE has a magazine anymore. No, um, twenty
1: fourteen is when they killed. Okay,
0: it. yeah, because yeah, I mean, I, I'm a, I, I am a, lo- I'm also a lover of magazines. I have, um, I, my wife is always like, you have so many magazines, you could just, you have the internet. I'm like, no, it's not the same. You don't understand, especially no. with wrestling. I mean, when I was a kid. The magazines were my window to the world. I mean, it was just, <laughs> you know. Um, but as far as the the WWE magazine goes, did they? How do I want to put this? Did they dictate what they wanted f- featured in the magazine to you, and then you work with what they want in it, or was it your was it yours to to do with as you pleased?
1: We were surprisingly off the radar. Um, Again, I can only talk about the time I was there because I don't believe it was always like that. I think in the early years of the magazine, they were more directly plugged into television. Linda McMahon was the original editor-in-chief of WWF magazine. So they were much more tied in. It was a much smaller company. By the time I got there, we were in our own little universe. I mean, the company had gotten big, not as big as it is now, but it had gotten so big. It was a public company. Vince Russo had just left and he kind of was left to his own devices. He didn't have a lot of supervision. And so we really were our own thing. We weren't bringing in a ton of revenue for the company. So they didn't really care so much. People act like, how did you guys get away with that? Or like, oh my God, how did you not get fired? Or like, or conversely, they'll say, oh, you guys were just a bunch of shills and doing whatever they told you. And it was like, we were kind of just doing whatever we wanted for a while there. Like, you know, certain things had to get approved and stuff, but especially like before, because in the middle of my tenure there, Shane McMahon really came to have a strong influence on our department, but there would be times where we would just do our own thing. Like I'll never forget. I did an interview with Randy Savage. It's a great example for raw magazine. We had, where are they now? I think it was for where are they now? And it was on the occasion of Randy had released his rap CD, be a man. And, mm-hmm. yeah. and we used it as, a I used it as an excuse to reach out to him. Now, mind you, I had no idea, nor did any of us at the time of any of the bad blood between the McMahons and Randy and him being on the outs with the company. All we knew was WCW was out of business and he was one of the only guys, big stars that didn't come in. And we wondered what the hell he was up to. And, I think he had just done something with TNA maybe around that time. And so I just wanted to interview him and it wound up being the last time to my knowledge that Randy Savage ever spoke to anybody involved with the WWE. And even, even Randy on the interview was incredulous as to like the fact that I was on the phone with him, like, and he even said to me once, does Vince know that you're talking to me? And I was, Honest. I said, Nope. I said, we just, <laughs> we just decided to do this. And, and I did it and it ran in the magazine. A lot of times I think it was just because nobody was watching. Like mm-hmm. when, when Arnold Skolan died, um, I insisted, I, they wanted me to write the obituary and I'm like, I've got to reach out to Bruno San Martino. How in the world can I write this? Like the, the person he's most associated with probably is Bruno Martino. And at that point, again, this is before the Hall of Fame. He was persona non grata still. Mm-hmm. I reached out to him. Same thing happened. He was, like, really impressed, you know. Can't believe you're talking to me. You're not supposed to talk to me. I was just like, don't worry about it. Put it in there. It ran. Nobody did anything. Nobody said anything. This happened a lot. We were very under the radar, very much.
0: And, and I, I mean, I guess that's, that's something. That, and this is not me saying that um... – because I, I was, I was one of the people buying the magazine even then. Cause again, like I said, I'm a magazine nerd, but the, uh, in a company like that, they will, they, a lot of companies like that will have things that, um, what do I want to say? That pretty much if they wanted to, they would just shut it down and not even care, you know? And, and like you said, being under the radar or like uh, one of the, it, it doesn't have to do with the magazine, but just a matter of um, the, uh, the, the, the things that companies will leave leave go on its own or what have you. I remember a really funny story that I saw triple H tell one time he was working as terrorizing, um, mm-hmm. out of, um, out of, um, Kowalski's, um, company. And he went and did WCW taping. I think for the main event, or it was, it was one of the, I think it was the main event, the one of the syndicated shows. Right. And, uh, They introduced him. He said he didn't want to be introduced as terrorizing because he didn't want to be known as terrorizing if he was going to be on television because he hated the name. They introduced him as terrorizing anyway. But Kevin Sullivan told him that the match wasn't going to be on TV. Don't worry about it. He says, like, three weeks later, he's outside mowing the yard or whatever, and his girlfriend comes outside, and she goes, you're on TV. You're on TV. And he comes in the house, and there he is on WCW main event, introduced. Krylon terrorizing. And he said he called Kevin Sullivan and said, I thought you told me it wasn't that it, the match with me is terrorizing wasn't going to air it aired on the main event. And Kevin Sullivan told him nobody watches that anyway. And I just I was like, what a punchline. Hey, you know, you, get, you have a company that's so big. They're like, this show doesn't do any ratings at all, but we're still going to produce it.
1: Yeah, no, it, it's very true. It, 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 there's a lot of that that goes on. It's funny, and I could I could hear that in Kevin's voice, him saying that yeah. to him. That's <laughs> Nobody
0: great. watches that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um.
0: So when you were when you were at the magazine, w- if you could give me just a couple of examples of of who were talents that were great to work with, and then maybe a couple that were not so great to work with, talent wise.
1: Most were very good to work with, I have to say um the 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 best would be Mick Foley, he was always great, totally warm and nice and kind, and actually knew who I was already the first time I met him just because he was a reader of the magazine too. He mm-hmm. was great um Al Snow was always very down to earth, probably the most normal of any of them, which you know is not. <laughs> It's not a very high bar to to clear, but I mean, he, I would say (laughs) that he, he was the most relatable. I really, Um, I really, sorry. I, um, Al's from like
0: 30 miles from here. I live like 30 miles from Lima, Ohio. And until he moved to Louisville, um, in Lima, he was just a guy around town. Al Snow is an awesome dude. I just, for anybody that doesn't, that does, has never got to meet him. He is, he is a great guy.
1: He is. Um, yeah. I mean, God, I'm trying to think of like who, uh, who was difficult. I mean, you know, what would happen a lot with some of them was they would start out really easy to work with. And then once they started getting some fame or success, they would start to get more difficult or more demanding. Mm-hmm. Or what would also happen sometimes is not that they would be difficult or demanding, but the business and the struggles and demons and things would start to take a toll. You know, I mean, Kurt angle would be a good example of that who was never difficult, but you know, because of what he was going through in his years at WWE in the later years, and he'd be the first one to say it, he was like a different person. It Mm -hmm. was like dealing with a different person than the way he was, when he first walked in the door, which was right around the same time I first walked in the door, um, he he really really changed for sure. And,
0: and I'm, I am I, I assume also probably with someone like Kurt Angle or whoever, you you start working for the WWE. You're just a wrestler. You're just wrestling on the card. You you probably as you get more popular, you're going to be involved in more things. You get you get marketed more you're also getting pulled in mo- many more different directions every day too you know you have a photo shoot for this but you have an interview for this tv show and you have to do this radio show and we have to do promotion in this town and et cetera, et cetera. hey we right. need you to for merchandising and so i'm sure you get as you get pulled in more different directions you also get a little crabby about that too i would assume
1: <laughs> yeah and and we were dealing with the extra le- layer of that which was for most of the things that we were doing with them, let's say magazines or even a little bit of dot com, they weren't making any money from that. Mm-hmm. And that makes a difference in how helpful and cooperative they're going to be. Like, right? you know, sometimes you'd be doing a photo shoot for the magazine and you'd have a guy going like, why am I doing this? Like, at least with the T-shirts, I get like five dollars a shirt or whatever. Like, right. <laughs> what am I doing this for? And then you would have to say to them, "Well, this is helping to get you over. This is exposure for your character. It's all part of the big picture." Sometimes they got it. Sometimes they sometimes didn't. Get they it. didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So after after WWE, um, I know. Then then did you go to work for PWI? Yeah, it was almost immediately after. In fact, because um, I knew a guy named Frank Vitucci, who is now the photo, he's like the photo boss of all of WWE, whatever his Mm -hmm. title is. He runs the photo department for the entire company. He's the last person there from the crew that where I was hired back in the day. So he's been there for like 22, going on 23 years now. And he started at PWI. And I actually was, I sort of helped to get him in the door because when they were interviewing for this photo editor, photo assistant position, I knew the name from reading PWI. I was like Frank Fatucci, oh my God, blah, blah, blah. And he had been like Bill After's assistant. And I said, Oh, you got to bring that guy in. That'd be so cool. You know what I mean? And and I I like to think that maybe that had a positive influence. But then when when I left and I was like, Oh God, this sucks. I really want to still write about wrestling, you know? And and I used my my kind of connection with him to say, Could you introduce me to some people over there? And he helped me out. I'm, I'm very grateful. He introduced me to Stu Sachs. and at the time, Frank Cruda who was involved in a lot of the day-to-day editorial stuff. They still had kind of a skeleton crew on site back in those days mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania. Now it's not, now it's just one, it's Kevin McIlvaney. It's just their editor in chief, but who runs everything like everyone else is, you know, freelance offsite. And, um, That started my relationship, but I had, and that was like late 2007, but I have to say like for years, I would only contribute a handful of stories a year to them. I think sometimes I would go even a full year without contributing anything here and there. I would contribute something. It wasn't until the pandemic again, 2020, Mm
0: -hmm. that I
1: became a regular full-time every month staff member and contributing. Like I have two monthly columns, two different ones. Plus I do interviews and features and things like I'm, I'm really a part of the team there now. And I have been for the past three years and I'm super grateful for that. But I mean, but, but my relationship with them does stretch back, you know, like 15 years for sure. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, um, it's, it's like, again, the pro wrestling illustrated my childhood right there, you know, it's (laughs) getting pro wrestling illustrated off the rack and that grandma taking me to get some candy in a wrestling magazine. And, uh, it's off to the races. Um, so a few questions and then I will, I will let you go. I had, these are one of them is a wrestling question. The others are not. I don't always, I don't always like to stick to wrestling. Sorry, John McAdam. I didn't do that on purpose. Um, but if you were going to, if you could watch, if you had to watch just one year of one promotion what would it be? Can if you, you you can only watch this one year of this one promotion? Where does your heart lie? Oh boy, I had I, I when I made up the question, I had a hard
1: time coming up with my answer. <laughs> you know what I might say, and it's not something that I was even a fan of at the time, or was aware of at the time. But I might say, like nineteen. 19- Eighty-two, mid south. Mm. Um, it's, it's yeah, no. That's a
0: good. That's a good poll. I mean,
1: it was it's some great just, stuff. Yeah, like that's my happy place. Like, like I'll go. Like, even just like eighty-one into like eighty-four. You know, before the changeover to UWF, like right mm-hmm. up to when they had Midnight Express, and you know. The height of the junkyard dog and Ted DiBiase going heel, the Rat Pack, like all that stuff. Um, Mister Wrestling Two and Magnum TA, like I wasn't a fan of it. I was a kid and I wasn't really right. into wrestling, and I don't even know if I would have been able to watch it anyway because I, I don't. I I know they were in some kind of syndication, but I don't know if it even aired in my area. I didn't even. Yeah, really I know we didn't.
0: Them. We didn't have it here. I didn't see. I didn't see Mid South until
1: until youtube but it's something (laughs) that i discovered i discovered it yeah through youtube and then later wwe network and just like to this day it's the only wrestling show that i can sit and truly because i don't do a lot of binge tv watching Mm -hmm. i have kids it's very hard to do that kind of thing i'm lucky if i could sit through if i get the opportunity to watch an entire movie in one day it's like a victory but the only show that I have e- – the only wrestling that I've ever actually sat and binge watched, like you're talking one in the morning, hour after hour, <laughs> and you can't turn it off, is Mid-South Wrestling. I mean, like, I, I, I don't know. There's just something about it, the way it's constructed, and it's also very comforting. Like, I, I, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. It's like when you're a kid and you're watching baseball with your dad. Like, you don't even really care about who's going to win right. or lose – it's just a comforting experience. Like for me, watching Mid-South is like that. Now, if I had to talk about my own time as a fan, what I watched when it was new and what I can go back to and enjoy the most, I am interested. To say, I'm interested to see if we have the same answer. Maybe. All right. What I mean. I'm going to say is not the most popular thing, I think, for a lot of people but it's early nineties WCW to me. Oh, okay. See, we didn't, we didn't have the same (laughs) like WCW from about the time that Ric Flair left and not, Mm -hmm. not because he left, but from around the time Ric Flair left up until the time that Hulk Hogan showed up (laughs) that window of time. That to me is like that. That's the kind of stuff that from my own time as a fan that I will go back to the most to watch.
0: It's, it's the, it's, it's definitely, I would say that period of time. I always say this to the guys on the show. That is to me, the absolute best Rick Root ever was during that. There was during that time, like as, as the top U S champion. Yes. As the top deal in that company. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Feuding with Dustin Rhodes, feuding with Ricky steamboat, the dangerous Alliance. I mean, yeah, that was the, the best and, and a, a unique, example very rare of somebody who wcw knew how to handle better than the wwf mm-hmm. absolutely especially somebody who usually the story you hear is somebody goes to the wwf and becomes bigger than they were and that definitely happened with rude i mean but then leaves the wwf and gets even better yes, i mean absolutely. that didn't really happen very often he's he's like he's a great example of that for me and it's a hard one.
0: And 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 I'm going with like like you said about when I was if it's when I was watching, because Mid South wouldn't count <laughs> since I didn't see it, then right. I am a my favorite year in any promotion is nineteen people always what? Nineteen ninety seven in the WWF. Um, Okay, the 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 in-between between between the new generation era and the attitude era. And you're kind of they're just throwing shit against the wall to see what'll stick. Bret Hart's heel heel run is one of my favorite heel runs of all time. Nothing better than Bret Hart with that shit eating grin on his face. (laughs) And I don't know, surrounded by his toadies that is his family and Steve Austin coming up. And I don't know. I just love 97 WWF.
1: It was a very volatile time. I remember it well, because what I remember is this. Uh, um Now, at the time, it was me and probably you and a lot of other fans, and we were all going like, what is happening right now to this company, <laughs> right? I mean, really, yeah. you came out of the mid-90s, which was as goofy as can be, and, and you got like three-year-olds watching, basically, and you're going like, what are they doing? This is like, what? <laughs> like gold dust is in a ball gag? Like what is happening? <laughs> and I remember um, it was right around that time that I first got on the internet because I was working. Uh, I got on AOL and the whole thing. And in those days for people that remember, WWF.com just got started. They had the AOL thing, but WWF.com got started, I think in 97, maybe 96. And they had back then message boards now this would be impossible to think of right wwe.com having message boards they had message boards and i remember they shut the message boards down because they got so many people like that who were like what the hell are you guys doing like what did i just watch what just <laughs> happened on your show and i think the screw job was the end of it for sure mm-hmm. and they didn't want that fan interaction but I mean, but you're right. That 97 is really the beginning of the Attitude Era. I mean, like yeah, and it, WrestleMania um, 13. I mean, that's really like where it starts. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a crazy year to
0: watch. It's a it's a year of of I I like years of change, and that is a huge year of change. Um, you know, you're you're starting to, it's it's like uh, you the, the he the line between heel and babyface is getting very very grainy at that point and everything, you know, it's like the, the speech that uh, uh, Bill Murray gives in Ghostbusters, dogs and cats living together, like the world's upside down. And it's like you said, it's just, it's like, what in the hell is going on? And I just found it so fascinating. And it was such a cool time to be a fan.
1: Oh yeah. (laughs) Bret Hart was great. And that was also like, that's the time where Russo is starting to get involved in the booking and you could see the effects of ECW on them. Mm -hmm. Like by 97, in my opinion, by 97, ECW had already peaked to me. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. After the first pay-per-view. Right. But the WWF was just starting to really like emulate them. And one of the things that started happening, which now I feel like is a curse and I wish it never happened, but tell me if I'm wrong here. 97 and it was right around the time of heel Bret Hart, like explaining himself to the fans and teasing the heel turn even before he turned. Mm-hmm. It was the beginning of long in-ring promos yes. from the talent. 97 yes. is really where it started and I think they got the idea from ECW which Heyman was doing because he didn't know how the hell else to fill the show, it should be pointed out. He had a limited <laughs> talent roster. He was a very creative guy, so he was like, I'm just going to have Shane Douglas shoot for like 20 minutes in you know on the mic. And they started copying that. And I remember one of the Brett was one of the first people I saw do it. It was like early 97. And I, and it's so funny to think now, cause it's now it's every week, but I remember watching it and going like, man, they're really letting him talk like this is mm-hmm. going and going. And it was, you know, that was the beginning of something that would never go away. I guess there was even a, an episode of raw. If you remember, it's
0: just, it's, um, it's an iconic moment to me, but there's that promo. It's at the end of a raw Brett Hart sitting in his wheelchair. Shawn Michaels is standing up and Shawn Michaels is shooting on Brett. And, and that, that they went so long with that, that they cut it off. The network cut it off. And then Brett or Sean accused Brett of going too long on purpose so that Sean couldn't cut his promo and behind the scenes, you know? So, It's yeah, you're right, though. That is that is when the long prom in ring promo started, and it's okay now and then, but it's definitely gotten abused the past 25
1: years. I have a big problem with them. The reason is that it was great when they were doing it then because it was a shock, and because you got the sense of, oh my god, like he's holding up the show, like you know what I mean, like this isn't supposed to be happening. Some guy got in the ring and hijacked the show and to get all this crap off of his chest. But when you have it every week as part of the show, like it is now, it just makes zero sense. And and this is where I just become the old school critic. But it's like you're presenting a, a, a wrestling show. You're presenting a pseudo sporting event on television. Why in the world? would they let these guys get in the ring every week and just talk in between matches? Like in what sport is anyone allowed to do that? You know, the, the, promos, when they were at their best, they would always find a way to work it into the show. Like there's gotta be a reason somebody's holding the microphone. You're being interviewed after a match. You're in the locker room. Something happens. You don't just stop the show and just let a wrestler talk directly to the crowd but i mean when you break it down it really is ridiculous but now it's just a completely accepted part of the show it just makes no sense to me but
0: well breaking the breaking uh, kayfabe here on the show folks Uh, i told brian before we started recording the interview that we're it's it's super super stupid windy here in ohio today just like the last time i was going to try to interview him which last time it knocked our internet out this time it has not thankfully but i have noticed over the past couple of minutes that the, we're starting to lag a little bit, so I don't want to I don't want lose you ent- entirely. So I'll just wrap it up. Maybe another time we can get back together and, and discuss some more stuff. It's been a blast having you on the show. Um, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, if you want to quickly run down where people can find you, social media, podcasts, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Sure, absolutely. Uh, well, there's a few things. The book is Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. And you can get it in print, digital, and audio form, which I read myself, on Amazon or barnesandnoble.com or even in physical stores. Um, The the podcast is Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. And you can find it wherever you get them. Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find podcasts. Um, I'm also a part of the Wrestling News with Arcadian Vanguard. We do a morning newscast uh, about wrestling. It's actually an audio newscast, and it's thewrestlingnews.com. Um, I guess that's about it, really. I mean, there's PWI, which is PWI-online.com. I also write for Inside the Ropes, that's InsideTheRopesmagazine.com, and and if people look for me on social media, I'm Brian R. Solomon on Twitter and Instagram. And there's links there to my author website, so that pretty much would sum it up. All right.
0: Well, like I said, I truly appreciate your time. It's been a blast talking some wrestling with you. And uh, next time, maybe we'll talk some non-wrestling stuff. But you know, you get to talking about one thing, and lo and behold, there you go. It's uh, it's 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 a, you're an hour later, and it's been a great time, Brian. Though, thank you very much for joining me. You're very welcome. And there you have it, everybody. My interview with Brian Sullivan. I want to thank Brian for being on the show this week. It was a pleasure to talk about his career and to talk some at the end there, just some of our personal favorite stuff in pro wrestling. You always, you always have that when you're talking to a fellow wrestling fan, even if you're trying to just talk about, you know, the thing like their career or what have you, you know, your fellow wrestling fans, when your conversation kind of gets into just your fandom. And that's the beauty of being a wrestling fan, isn't it? Just talking to other fans about the sport, about the history of professional wrestling and, uh, What a great conversation. Thank you again, Brian, for joining me this week on the show. Um, Of course, as you know here, this is the We Can't Wrestle podcast, but if you have not, please check out the other shows here on the WrestleNet Radio Podcast Network, including my brother, myself, and Chad Austin, every single week discussing the history of ECW on Reliving the Extreme, our friend Archie Mitchell talking the modern product on If You Smell What the Arch Is Cooking. Of course, Aaron's show, The Year That Was, where he is discussing currently the year that I mentioned to Brian just a little bit ago. He's going through 1997 on Nitro and Monday Night Raw. And so many more shows you can check out here on the WrestleNet Radio Podcast Network. We thank you all for your support. And again, I'll say just at the end of the show, if you could, please go subscribe to the WrestleNet Radio Podcast Network on YouTube. Lots of new stuff coming in the next few weeks to the YouTube page. I'm really excited about it. That being said, I'm going to sign off this week for the We Can't Wrestle podcast, and we will see you all next week. I think next week we are going down Texas way. We're going to discuss the World Class Championship Wrestling Parade of Champions 1987. So that should be a fun one. (laughs) But until then, I want to say everybody have a great week, and we'll see you next time around here on the We Can't Wrestle podcast.